started chapter 7, Perspectives on Christ of the Gospel of John. And we saw this is taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booth, Sukkot. We got a little exploration on all of the different feasts that take place. Uh, One of our elders one-upped my chart on feasts. I'm not going to mention who it is, but we've got another feast chart circulating that has even more details and information. So if you want a better feast chart, Talk to Paul Dorinsky. Um, within the uh, verses that we looked at, we saw four perspectives taking place. We saw familiar unbelief. We saw controlling rejection. We saw fear-filled faith. And we saw faithless rejection. And we were reminded there's only one source to shift our perspective. And it is a faith that is rooted and surrendered in belief in Christ alone. Because that is eternal. That lives in an eternal perspective. And that is what trusts Christ alone. Chapter 7, the chapter that we're in, it's going to be coming to talking about the Holy Spirit coming unto us and flowing from the heart rivers of living water. And if we think about the bread of life in the previous chapter and much that's going on here, it's really leading and driving us that we're going to be getting ready to have to ponder the Holy Spirit and what communion with the Holy Spirit truly is. And the reality with churches, as I've mentioned before, either abandoning the Holy Spirit altogether, abusing the Holy Spirit, rejecting the Holy Spirit, intellectualizing the Holy Spirit, casting judgment on the Holy Spirit, casting judgment on people who use the Holy Spirit, all these things going on with the Holy Spirit. Rather than just reading the Word of God, take it at face value, surrender and seek communion with the Holy Spirit. More and more as we go through the Gospels, we're going to be reminded of man's desire to categorize and box things in. In the name of academia, in the name of knowledge. And I firmly believe it's one of the things that's really hurting God's people today. And I think it's one of the things that is hurting the church because we're going too far to control God rather than to surrender to God. And in that, we have to remember a lot of those areas of struggle often come from unbelief. How could God do dot, dot, dot? How could, what? How could that be true, what I just read in the scripture? So again, searching ourselves for that familiar, that controlling rejection, that fear-filled faith, that faithless rejection. So your charge check-in. One, how is your faith and belief in Christ alone? How'd you do searching that this week? Did you find any familiar unbelief in yourself? Did you find any controlling rejection? Did you find any fear-filled faith? Did you find any faithless rejection? What did you explore? Remembering we never arrive at perfection. Contrary to what you might think, that you know a lot and you know it all, you don't. We need Jesus. Two, do you surrender to God's sovereignty and accept your responsibility to obey His timing and His will Together. That was an important one to remember. It's got to be together. His timing and his will. How are you doing with that? And the third point was, are you communing with the Holy Spirit enough with his word? Are you communing enough? If persecution, when persecution comes, will you run? Or are you able to say, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I will stand on the rock of salvation. How are you doing with that? So today we continue on in chapter 7 and we're going to be hitting verses 14 to 31 with a message entitled, Boiling Befuddlements. It's a word that I remember getting in fifth grade vocab and I've waited to use it and we got it. (laughs) Boiling Befuddlements. 
Now, when we think when one is befuddled, what a word, they're confused. And that confusion often leads to confusion of other people. Befuddlement often comes from an inability to be willing to seek genuine comprehension. And that boiling, if we see and remember chapter 7 and chapter 8 of this gospel, where we are right now, we talked about before we started 7, things are boiling. The frustration from the leaders, it's getting up. They want to kill Jesus. They want to remove Jesus. They want him gone. And we're going to see a continued journey of an inability of man to take Jesus at his word. And how applicable that is to us with the word of God oftentimes. We're going to see that they're going to be confused and they're going to question three things. We're going to see them question his abilities. We're going to see them question his actions. We're going to see them question his appearance of how he came onto the scene. Abilities, actions, appearances. And in that, we're going to see Jesus remain focused on one thing. Communion and obedience to God the Father. His abilities get questioned. He points to God's authority. He points to God's glory. His actions get questioned. He points to God's righteousness and righteous judgment. His appearance, how he came on the scene, how he's doing things gets questioned. And he points to the fact he's the only begotten son sent by God. And if you know God, K-N-O-W, you will know him. But if you have no God and no God, you're going to have no Jesus. And he points to all of that. And at the core of these passages, saints, we're going to be having to also remember that double-edged sword. Look at our own boiling befuddlements. What seeks to confuse us about God? What questions do we have about his word, about his people? Do you judge? How do you judge? And in this, we are going to have to ask ourselves, where might today be a place that we have to say, forgive me, Father, cleanse me, make me live according to your word, make me live according to your precepts. Where would that be? Let's stand and read John chapter 7, verses 14 to 31. We read. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. 
Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid hold on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, fill me afresh that the words that come out be what are needed for your people. Lord, prepare the hearts, minds, and souls of each and every single person, Lord. Help us all to cast aside our preconceived notions or whatever we think, Lord, to hear from you and you alone, that we would be surrendered, that we would be yielded. Father God, help us to see how Jesus handles the questions. And Father God, help us to explore judgment in a way that allows you to refine us for your glory. In Jesus' precious, mighty name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. So verse 14, we get now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. So we know before this, his brothers were the ones that said, you got to just go, come with us right now, get up there, make a big show, show who you are. And we saw his response in that, he's focused on God's timing. He's not going to do anything out of God's timing and out of God's way. And remember, Jesus knows everything. He knew they're seeking to kill him. They're seeking to take him down. He goes because he is obedient to the Father. He has full faith in the Father. We also know this is one of the three feasts that it is required for the male to go. And he's in his perfection going to go as God the Son and as the Son of God in obedience. He travels solo God's way. He arrives in God's timing. Jesus is without fear and he continues to remain true to the calling and purpose which he came teach and preach the word of God. For he is the word. He is God veiled in the flesh. And what does he teach upon revival? What does he do when he gets to the temple? God. He just teaches the word. And that's what we're going to see as we go through these passages. Now, one thing to set us up to remember, he's now in Jerusalem. I want us to remember the last time he was in Jerusalem. And we're just going to turn back and we're going to just read through John chapter 5 just to remind ourselves, quick memory recall, Because it's going to be important later on in this chapter. So we see in John chapter 5. After this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but I am coming. When I, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who has made me well said to me, Take your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. 
For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only spoke, broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So that was the last time that we had Jesus in Jerusalem. Sparked a little controversy, if you will. And now he's back, and the first thing he's doing, he's teaching. And he's teaching with one with skill, with one with insights, with one with ability. And going through Jesus as God the Son, teaching through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see, as they see his teaching, look at what they say in verse 15. And the Jews, the leaders, marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? This is a question they ask. How does he know this, having never studied? We don't understand this. The ones not submitted to God in their hearts aren't able to accept, they aren't able to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is called and anointed by God for this specific purpose, but they're not able to see it. They look, where's where's the education? Where's the education that he has? They're looking at the abilities right now. They're questioning his abilities, and they're saying, we studied under these people. Remember, we see from Paul, he studied under Gamaliel. And they're looking, who did you study under? What? There's the way that this all goes. But it's about the calling and anointing. And there's an important reminder to us that the calling and anointing is more important than the education. It's more important than the education. You'll have some churches who will go through process and, well, let's see his credentials. Does he have a master's in theology? Does he have a master's in this? Does he have that thing? Where did he do this? And they forget about the calling and anointing. They forget that that's what it needs to be about. It's not just about the desire that someone may have. It's not just about checking the box of fancy resume. It's the calling and anointing. That's an important, important piece. And that same questioning of the credentials, that same questioning of the work that the Holy Spirit can do through men, we see it continue on in the early church. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 5. Peter and John have been arrested, and they're they're now going to be speaking before the rulers. And in verse 5 of Acts chapter 4, we read, And it came to pass on the next day, that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an important thing, and we just looked at this on Wednesday night too. It's an important thing to see that. It's not in own strength. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. Said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. There's that word again. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. So we see this once again, looking, not realizing the calling and anointing, and I think we know those two were called and anointed by Jesus, God himself. And they're looking and they're, they're questioning the abilities there. They're questioning, how does this go? How does this work? And the follow-up is quite beautiful. Look at verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they give the testimony of everything that went on. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. The power and necessity of the church coming together in one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and they bring scripture into this moment of prayer. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, so they magnify him. Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's a prayer that says, we're going to keep going, but we need your boldness. We need your filling. And when they had played, the place where they assembled together was shaking, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And that boldness there, they're telling every single detail. Nothing held back. Telling it all. And there's that powerful boldness coming only from one, the Holy Spirit, tied to the word of God. Again, when we think about people in astonishment, we should never stop being astonished by the work of the Spirit. But as we see in this moment, when they're questioning, how is he doing this? He's never studied. When one is not truly communing with God, they can't see the work of the Spirit. They come to say how. They say, well, that, that, that doesn't make sense. How can that work? That It just doesn't fit in the box that I've made. It doesn't fit in the way that I think things need to be done. So the abilities are questioned and see how Jesus answers this. Verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So Jesus, in those verses, he makes it clear he's come to do one thing, and it's not his own thing that he's come to do. He hasn't come for his own glory. It's about the Lord. He's come to do God's will. He's come to give God's word, and everything that he says is from God alone. Jesus says very clearly to them, his teaching is directly from God. And that's a reminder to every single person that is ever called to preach the word of God. Stick to the word of God alone. This is your first time here and you go somewhere else and if they're doing the word and they're like, let me tell you about this really fancy book. And then they, now they even they just put the Bible down and it's completely out of the picture. 
No, 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 no. You've got to stay rooted on one thing alone, the word. His word, his spirit, his way. So in this, he's saying it's all done through God. And then in verse 17, he hits a very important nugget. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. They're questioning his ability. His ability is coming through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says here, if anyone wants to do God's will, if their desire, when we see will there, it's desire, is to do God's will, they shall know. The religious leaders profess that desire to be doing God's will, but guess what? Their heart motive wasn't truly about knowing God. It wasn't truly about communion with God. It was about me, 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 me. And that's often how it is. People can profess, but it's really all about them. But he's saying here, if they really, really desire that, if they really want to understand truly the things of God and they're surrendered and there's a commitment to trust and know him, which these leaders lacked because they want the glory themselves, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will have you know it. It will be so crystal clear to you. You will know because your desire is pure and wants to know God's going to be faithful through his word. You will know that it's true. And that heart goes back to the verse that we opened before the message. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. The heart that that's the one desire, God says you can have anything you want, and that heart that says, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to behold your beauty. I just want to know your glory. That's the heart that comes and they have a desire to know what authority does this come with. And as they search the scriptures to know the Lord through the Holy Spirit makes it ever clear. It's God. And it is from God. Now we all have selfishness in us. As I'm talking about the leaders and their selfishness, we all have it. And we all struggle at times of looking to him alone. Because in our modern culture, we have social media, which trains us to make it all about you. Make your profile, make your following, how many likes do you have, who's retweeting you, that person's cool, I got to get them to retweet me. And it's all about building your fan base. And also within our culture, anyone can be a self-proclaimed expert. And anyone can get a follow. Anyone can show up in a room and they just, it's the person that shows up and talks the whole time and doesn't let anybody else have a word in the conversation because they know so much. That's what we see there. So we have to ask ourselves, do you seek to create a following or do you seek to follow the way, the truth, and the life? And the result, it's again a work of the Spirit. For us with the entire word of God, the Spirit of God lives in us. And reveals the word to us. And that verse 17, that's when you hear scripture and you see that person who's so surrendered to the spirit, their head shakes and they're like, amen. Because their soul is saying, amen, that's right. That is the word of God. That is infallible. That is perfect. It is the word of God. Where is your heart with the word of God? Where is your commitment to knowing the things of God and his word led by the spirit? John 16, 13, we're going to get there. He reminds us. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Do you lean on that? 
Do you commune with that? Do you write that one? Memorize that one for homework today. And remind yourself what the Spirit of God who dwells in you enables you to do with the Word of God, enables you to understand. So we go on, verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. He hits their motive. Because he's saying, your, your, your search is all about yourself and your laws and your rules and people having your control, under your control. But he's saying, no, 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 when it's like that, it, it's not real. And then he goes further to remind them, verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? He reminds them, Moses, yes, that law came through him, and guess what? You don't even keep it. And the vessel that's come to bring salvation, now you want to kill me. Why? He's bringing up Moses because he knows where the conversation's going to be going in a bit. And Jesus knew their motives, and he's calling out their motives. They question his abilities, and he points to God's authority and God's glory alone. And as he points to God and God alone, at the same time, if you see how he hits those areas in verses 18 and 19, he reminds them of the intents of their heart through his word. Then we get verse 20. The people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So the folks, the common people, they would be many that didn't know the intents of these leaders, what they wanted to do. So they're saying now, they're looking and they're like, this dude, you're crazy. You've got a demon. What are you thinking? Who, who wants to kill you? Again, an inability to just take Jesus at his word. To take Jesus at his word. Instead, they take it at the logic of their minds, what they can see, what they understand. Jesus delivers the word, but hearts that aren't truly surrendered can't understand it. They can't just take. He says, why do you seek to kill me? This is Jesus, son of God. If he's saying they're seeking to kill him, they're seeking to kill him. Done. I have no questions. But instead, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Are you able to accept Jesus at his word? This is a recurring theme as we see the heightening boiling of the questioning. They're always questioning what he says. And we need to make sure our hearts aren't that with the word of God. You read it, oh, I don't know about that. That's not how we can do this. Jesus gives an answer and points them back to what we read in John chapter 5. We read in verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. That one work that he's talking about, that's why we read John 5. It was that last time he was in Jerusalem. He's like, I did one thing last time I was here and you marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, and we get the parenthetical comment from John, as we see consistent in this gospel, that the Gentile reader would understand the details. He's saying, not that it's from Moses, because he knows it's from the fathers, the time of Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. One work, that one thing that he did, he did that healing. And we remember in John 5, 18, exactly why it really infuriated them. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. It's a double whammy. We remember when we looked at that, but the big thing, that was blasphemy at that time. Again, an inability to take Jesus at his word. They dissect everything that he does. 
And now they're pointing to the action that took place. That action that I did. You're judging. You're questioning that action. And he says, I know. He, Jesus knew. They all knew. Leviticus 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, if a woman had conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, if the child is born and the eighth day is Sabbath, hold on till the ninth day. No, you can't break the law. You do it on the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath. Doesn't matter. Law, 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 law. And here Jesus is saying, is the law above God's grace and mercy? Is the law above God's grace and mercy? And herein lies what Jesus confronts with these leaders, their religion, theosity, their stuckness with the law and limiting themselves to the law alone, neglecting to see the new grace, the new mercy that Jesus is seeking to usher in. The purpose of Jesus was to fulfill the law, to bring renewal, to bring redemption to God's people, but their limited minds, unable to take him at his word, remain befuddled, confused. And that confusion just keeps getting passed along. They couldn't rest in the fact of Jesus' action. Imagine if they saw that healing on the Sabbath and they just said, whoa, we got to pray. There's something here. And just taking his action and then prayerfully seeing the grace and mercy. His ability was questioned due to the inability of the work, the inability for them to see the work of the Holy Spirit. And then now we see the actions questioned because it's the inability to see the power of the Messiah to be over the law. Because it is finished. It will be finished for them. They can't see where it's moving. And both of those anchor pride. Pride is a big thing that gets in the way of deep communion with our king. Because when you're prideful, there's no surrender and you want the control. And he's laying here for us the foundation of man's inability that we see timelessly to rest in the mysteries of God. Because there's many things our Lord can do and will do. And rather than rest in the mystery, we've got lots of people writing books to prove whatever God can't do. And again, here he's pointing to the law in this moment with the actions and saying, is it about religion or relationship? Now, we're not going to look at verse 24. We're going to come back to verse 24. We're going to go on to 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now we're on the appearance. They're first looking, okay, he's speaking really boldly. Nothing's happening. I don't understand this. Let's question that. They're looking at that. And then there's the bit of, well, wait a second. If he's the Messiah, the Messiah is just supposed to come from nowhere. But we, we know him. We know Mary. We know Joseph. This makes no sense. They're questioning this. He's standing before these religious leaders without fear. He's speaking boldly, work of the Spirit. The Sabbath incident that they would have known of and heard last time shows his power, his authority from God. But they're stuck. No, no, no. Remember, the scripture says it's going to be that he just comes out of nowhere. It's a misinterpretation and misunderstanding as they would have studied Malachi 
And they would have seen, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In that peace, they're seeing there, he's suddenly coming in the temple. So that has to mean it's just going to be out of nowhere. He's just suddenly going to appear. They forgot Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. It's a little reminder in that moment, you got to have the whole counsel of the word of God. And when we're looking at pieces of the word of God, you've got to look at everything. But with the appearance, it doesn't fit the box that they want. Because this boldness and what's going on, this isn't fully making sense because he's just a regular dude. He's not supposed to be a regular dude. And he's supposed to come out of nowhere. But we know the parents, this just doesn't make sense. So we're, we just got to, we're, we're stuck there. What about you? Again, can you take Jesus at his word or not? Do you read the word of God and surrender, ask the Holy Spirit for comprehension, for deeper understanding? Or do you go to your own intellect and justify it? Because, well, of course, you know better, and it makes you feel better. When we let the Word of God be what we want it to be, it feels good. And folks, it's 2024. Grab your Bible, grab your false truth that you find, and find a group of people, and you'll have a posse that's with you and believes you on the train to deception. And then you'll hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you've deceived yourself. Church needs to wake up. We have to take the word of God at face value. The word of God has one means of interpretation. Truly one. In the Friday morning men's study, we had a conversation about the essentials. And it led to an interesting little moment for us. Because there was a time where you could say, yeah, you know, we'll just, we can agree to disagree on this. But with where everything is gone, this is me speaking personal opinion. Vince Vincent, being clear from the pulpit, personal opinion, Vince Vincent. I believe part of why the church is the mess that it is today is because we've allowed that compromise to creep in. Oh, we can agree to disagree on this. We can agree to disagree on this. And now we can agree to disagree that there's two genders. That's what we've done. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Repentance and salvation is the only way to avoid that. A great tribulation is going to come. The rapture is not a topic for debate. It is a topic for hope. The word of God is either clearly taken as is or not. And we have to understand and take the word as is. Period. Now we go on here. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him for I am from him and he sent me. He reminds here that he has been sent and he was sent by God. Guess what? That's reminding us too. He's sent by God. He points to it because again, they're struggling here. There's that inner confusion going. We're not really getting this. How are you here like this? And he's like, I'm here because the father sent me. I'm here because I know him. You don't get this because you don't know God. And again, it makes me think of our intellectual and self-righteous culture today that struggles with the things of the word of God. The gifts should be real and active in the body of believers. No, they should not. A rapture? How? Jesus is God. No way. The Bible is real. Uh Uh-uh. No, it's not. It's just a book of stories. 
And those things that I just hit are spoken from people who profess belief, who profess to be Christians. And it can't fly like that. Because as we look at this, he's reminding you're not knowing it because you don't know God. Where is your heart with the God of creation? Where is your heart with the God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth? Jesus stays consistent with his truths there because there's one truth, the word of God. He stays consistent when they hit his abilities. He stays consistent when they hit the action. He stays consistent when they hit the appearance. And then the result, verse 30. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Self-righteous and unforgiving sinner in the room, I want to remind you and hope that you realize amidst your misery that the God of creation is sovereign. And because of that, will you actually come to repentance and be saved that you're not cast to the lake of fire forever? Because when we see this verse, we have to understand something. God is sovereign. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. Not happening because God is not allowing it. Yet, the hour had not yet come. Then we see verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Those who believe, and they're not caring about the opposition. They marvel at all that he does. It's like, if this guy isn't Jesus, then what more could the one who come do? Miracles, teaching, loving, suffering, giving, forgiveness, raising from the dead, the never-ending list of everything Jesus does done. If he isn't Messiah, who could do more than Jesus? For us with the full word of God, believer of Christ, who can do more than Jesus on the cross? No one. No one. Their boiling befuddlements led to judgments. They judge Jesus. They're questioning, and their question is judgment. So a question I have for us then is, are we called to judge? Whenever a believer today may try to say something or do something that could come across as judgment, and I remember a former educator, I would say certain things. Well, the Word of God says, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? Doesn't the Bible say don't judge? You're being really judgmental, Vince. You're being really judgmental. So let's back up now. We're going to go to a verse that we skipped over, verse 24. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This brought upon prayerful conviction for this pastor this week. Jesus makes it clear. Don't judge on appearance, but righteous judgment. So there's an anchor holding the line in accordance to one thing, the word of God. Righteousness is found in God alone, only in the word of God. And I have to add some caveats. It's in the word of God at face value, in context, without man's added limitations that they have in fear of wrestling and surrendering to the things of God. That's the full caveat we need there. Because I can say, take it in the word of God in context, and then you run with it and make your own theology. Hold on. You got to also surrender. Be ye humble. Then we turn to Matthew 7 now. Verse 1, judge not, and this is happening in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's shifting now from the internal things that he's telling, and now he's moving to how we treat one another. And we see, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, 
you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, when we look at this, this is where it becomes a universal thing. See, it says you're not supposed to judge, so you just have to universally accept everyone. And men, uh, prayer and study, we looked at the Reformation Project and all that. This is one of those areas where they move with that idea that you have to be accepting of everything. No, 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 that's not what this is saying. And if you look at verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? There's discernment, there's judgment, there's knowing, holding against the word of God. So, and with the measure you use, it's going to be used to you. That should motivate love, forgive, and walk as Christ with your Christ-like mindness. And some of the rabbis at the time, when they would discuss judgment, they would make it something where your judgment has two things. It's either justice or mercy. If we think about that, anybody who knows the blood of Christ, our judgment's mercy, God's mercy. We should be bridges for that mercy. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we have this piece where we've got to be mindful. Am I exalting myself above others? That phrase that can come in, no one's like me. Are you putting yourself above others? And if you're going to cast that judgment as you do that, my question to you, are you willing to share what your prayer and confession life is like? Before you cast that judgment, I want to hear your prayer and confession. Not as the Catholic priest, Catholic baggage there, just to be clear. But are you willing to put that prayer life out there? You know, Kelly loves to talk about people behind their back. Okay, what are you doing right now while you talk about Kelly? Do we see that? It's easy to judge and not actually look at how we live and not actually look at what we do. We strike the faults of everyone else, but it's actually harder and we avoid uncovering the faults that lie under our own flesh. Think of the last time that you judged someone's abilities or perhaps their actions or perhaps their appearances Are you guilty of any of the things you've judged yourself? Or are you so perfect that you just get to declare what's wrong with everybody else because you're flawless? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. The one who simply says when you hear of grievous sin, oh my goodness, how could they do that? That's horrible. The more I spend time in the word of God, the more I realize if that's your thought, you're not communing with this word. Because if you're in the word of God, when you hear of grievous sin, your heart breaks like God's heart breaks. And you understand, but for the blood of Christ, that could be me. It was one of the most humbling things starting to go to Caswell and Dan River, the prisons that we minister to. Because you could have this thing and say, oh, well, these guys, look at all the bad things they've done. Yeah, they just got caught. That's the reality. But for the blood of Christ, any of us could be in that situation. If you're sitting there right now thinking, not me. Humble yourself, please. Humble yourself. We need to have that humility. Do you spend more time thinking about how much better you are than everyone else? Or are you thinking about how much mercy and grace you need from the king? Because that's where we got to be. Do you think of sin as just the big ones? Or do you really let him search your heart? 
Does your prayer life actually show repentance and confession unto the Lord? Do you surrender and need God's leading, or do you think you can do it on your own because you know how to think? These are things we have to think because judgment stifles the new heart of compassion that Christ has given us. If we're judging by the word of God, Hebrews 12 tells us the word of God is that double-edged sword. That's why judgment needs to be anchored in the word alone. Because if you're doing it with the word, as you're discerning, you're like, oh, this is hitting me too. Do we have to go there? But if you're just judging on your own, you're stifling that new heart. And that's when it's all about them instead of us. Because you're not surrendered in Christ. You place yourself above others. You judge everything about them. And it gets ugly and you cast judgment and you can attach anything you want to your judgments to justify it. People say dot, dot, dot. Others think dot, dot, dot. As we judge and we judge and we judge. Judgment will be done. We all judge. Let's be real. Especially if you're from the Northeast. But the reality of the situation is with, it's true, with judgment, it's got to be done in line and in accordance with the word of God. (laughs) With the word of God. And when we're doing it, we've got to check our hearts. Because if your heart's boiling with anger, if your heart's boiling with frustration, as these are who are coming to Jesus, hold the phone. And another way judgment can come is, you're the goody two-shoes. I do this right, I do this right, I do that right, I do this right, I do this right, I do this right. That's not biblical. This is biblical. I do this right, I do that right. Hold the phone, friends. Hold the phone. That's another way. Because guess what? When we're truly surrendered, we can't sit in judgment because we want forgiveness. Because we want Christ's forgiveness on our heart and we want to extend that forgiveness. In our culture today, that's something that can be lost because we look at what's going on. Oh, they're so dot, dot, dot. How about you pray that the Lord can break your heart that instead of they're so dot, 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 they need Jesus. Lord, bring someone to their path to open them up to their depravity that they would have salvation. Well, I don't know them. God does. Do you care about God? Do you love the Lord? I think boiling befuddlements when we're surrendered and walking in the spirit becomes, oh, phone ring, how dare you, kidding, becomes humbled harmony. Because we are humbling ourselves enough to realize I don't have all the answers. Boiling befuddlements should become graceful gatherings because we want to be under the grace and mercy of our Savior and extend that to others. Boiling befuddlements in the body of believers should become forgiving fellowship. If you got baggage with someone in this room, only the Lord knows, you got to talk it out. You got to say, Can you forgive me? Let's make things better. Because that honors God. Keeping it within you doesn't. That doesn't, well, I'm handling it myself. No, that's division in the body of believers. If there's an issue, Talk to the person. Can we talk about this? May I have your forgiveness on this? And as a result, then it's repented running. Because when you truly repent, you turn away from whatever it is and you run towards the king. 
And as we go towards that run, as we do that, it's striving for the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's running towards those things. Do you judge our world? Do you judge others? Not actually according to the word of God. Because that's where we have to search our hearts. So charge for this week, one. Do you take Jesus at his word? Or do you question his abilities, his actions, his appearances? Is he who he is and what he's done through the word, taken as is? Or are there questions? And it's good to have questions, but are those questions seeking for the Holy Spirit to teach you more? Are those questions making you create your own belief system that doesn't actually line with the word of God? Two, how do you judge? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And that's a tricky one because then you could say, yeah, well, I judge with righteous judgment. Look, they're a sinner. They're this, they're that. What's your heart behind that? Because you can be aware of the sin and confront it through the word of God. But that heart is desire. Open their eyes. Open their eyes to truth. Three, will you allow God to search your heart? Will you repent? When judgment comes up in scripture, we got to ponder each time how we judge. And we need to ask God, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to seek forgiveness from? Because that's allowing God's word to bring you into deeper communion with his people. Because far too many people, we just allow the enemy to have us keep up walls in the name of privacy. I'm not telling you you need to be an open book. That's not what I'm saying. But you need to be able to say, let's be real with one another. We're the body of Christ. Let's be real. Starts with yourself and your relationship with the Lord. Starts with the people that are under the roof of your home. And then it extends to the body of believers. So one, do you take Jesus at his word? Two, how do you judge? And three, will you allow God to search your heart? Will you repent? Now we've got...